And it's not an open question for Mark. He says it right off, chapter 1, verse 1. He is the Son of God. The rest of those first eight uh, chapters really build ultimately to why we can be so confident of this uh, through a variety of means, uh, culminating when, when Peter makes his confession, you are the Christ. The other major, major big idea in Mark, and there's lots of other important ideas, and we'll touch on them as we go through, is about discipleship. We don't, that really starts to set in as you, you move to the middle part of Mark and into the back half of Mark, the, the cost of discipleship, the nature of discipleship, the complete and utter failure of the disciples repeatedly. Um, Mark is very much a sort of self-flagellating book. If you um, may want to make the disciples look bad, they look pretty bad there. But right now we're in that first half of, of Mark, and, and we'll spend about half our time that we're in Mark in there, relatively proportional. And it is, it is focused heavily on the identity of Jesus. So what we encounter tonight, uh, we encounter a very powerful Jesus. One who is doing battle with demons. We're going to look at two passages, one from chapter 1, one from chapter 3. The demons know exactly who he is. Right, so this is part of that testimony and building up our understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, battle is a misnomer. Right? He doesn't really have a battle with the demons. Right? He just tells them to get, and they get. That's not a battle. Uh, it's not like the exorcist or something like that, where it's some great struggle. He just commands them, and they obey. Uh, but that's, that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Uh, we're going to be starting in, in chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. I feel slightly guilty because I did a preach a sermon on this about 18 months ago, but it was in August. Nobody was really here, uh, so it's okay. <clears throat> By way of background, just jumping from where we were last week in the first 11 verses that ended with the baptism uh, of Jesus, uh, then there's an incredibly brief uh, temptation narrative. Mark doesn't put a lot on, of detail about the, the temptation. Uh, then we see sort of the beginning uh, of... Jesus' preaching ministry, and the calling of the first disciples. And then we get into what is kind of the first action in the story, the first big, other than the baptism, but his first public action where he does something that demonstrates his, his power, that begins to build that understanding of who he is, uh, that begins to build his fame. The other thing we're going to see a lot in the first parts of Mark is you just see this idea of these incredible crowds, Right, every chapter, every story, his his fame grows, his celebrity grows, and more and more people are are following him and and wanting to see the Jesus show because it's such a great show. Right, and part of that theme of discipleship is we're going to see there's a difference between these people and true true disciples. These people really are mostly just here for a show. So we come to this passage. Uh, he's returned home to his home base, anyway, of Capernaum. And so I'll read the passage, and then we'll kind of talk about it a bit. It says, and then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, you'll recall I mentioned that immediately gets used a lot in the Gospel of Mark. I think it's like 57 times or something like that, the, this word in the Greek that usually gets translated to immediately. So then immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. Scribes were the usual teachers, so very unusual. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus 
of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is really, uh, he's been preaching. We saw that uh, early on, verses 14 and 15. He's preaching, but now this rockets him into celebrity status because he's, he's teaching in this extraordinary way, and he has this tremendous power. Right, so he is here, he, he's come to his home base, he goes into the synagogue on a Sabbath, and, he, and he's invited to teach. And it was, it was normal, like if you were a somewhat prominent teacher, I would guess at this point they knew him because he'd been doing preaching back in verses 14 and 15. They, they would invite him to teach the lesson that day, or to say a few words interpreting Scripture. We have no idea what he said. That's not important to Mark to tell us. Uh, but note in verse 22, right, the idea that we see uh, familiar, if you were here from Matthew, when we talked about the Sermon on the Mount. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Again, the scribes were the usual teachers in the synagogue, and Jesus clearly had a very different style. I would speculate it may be similar to the style we saw in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, where, where he, the style there, right, he's saying, oh, You've read in the Ten Commandments, X, Y, Z, but here I am, I'm going to tell you to raise the standard. You've read in Moses, and here I am, I'm going to tell you to raise the standard. Right? A very unique style. Again, is that what he's saying here? I don't know. We don't know. It's not important to Mark to tell us, but, but that's the idea of authority. He is he's not teaching the way they have ever heard in their entire life, because they've not had a true prophet of God other than John the Baptist in 400 years. What they're used to is a teaching style that, that basically quotes a, a string of rabbis, one after another after another. Uh, I don't know that I have a gr perfect example for you, but I'll give you a little example of it. It's from the Mishnah, which is like commentary on, on the law, on Torah. And uh, this is from the Mishnah talking about how to observe Rosh Hashanah, and it's one of the rules on this. So it's a little bit hard to follow. I'll do my best, right? So it's talking about how many verses they're supposed to recite. It says, they may not recite less than 10 sovereignty verses, 10 remembrance verses, or 10 shofar verses. Rabbi Yohanan ben Nuri says, if he recites three of each, he's fulfilled his obligation. All right, so we have the one. Now we got a different guy who's got his, his thing. They may not make mention of any remembrance, sovereignty, or shofar verses that record divine chastisement. They begin with verses from the law and end with verses from the prophets. Rabbi Jose says, if a man ends with verses from the law, he's fulfilled his obligation. It's that one person commenting on another person, commenting on another person. That's kind of, I think, the style they're used to. It might not be exactly that, but that idea, right? No one's saying, this is what I tell you. No one's saying, this is what God tells you. They say, well, here's... Here's this, and then this guy says this, and this guy says this. And Jesus clearly does not talk like this. He never, we never see a recorded instance of him talking like this. And so they are just bowled over by this. And the talking at this phase of his ministry is, 
is the most important thing he's doing. Right? Miracles are all well and good that he's going to do, but, but the talking is the main thing. Dallas will talk about this some next week, I think. Um, the question, though, is if you're this guy, you know, 30-ish years old, from Nazareth, no particular credentials from a typical uh, sense of the word, how do you get people to listen, right? If you're talking with authority, how do they know you're not a heretic? Why should they listen to you? I think that's a genuine conundrum. But God solves the problem for him. In my opinion, this is a, this is a God appointment. right? Jesus has that, that power. Because in verse 23, immediately, there's that word again, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Right? Conveniently enough, a person possessed by a, de- a demon shows up for synagogue or is already there. This sets up a, a power encounter, if you will, a spiritual battle between Jesus and the demon, which I think is serving to demonstrate authority. We, going back to that lesson we did on how do you tell the point of a story, this concept of authority shows up, kind of brackets the demon battle part, right? The, the first thing before the demon, right before the demon, they talk about his authority, and then, then the thing after the demon's gone is his authority, right? That bracketing of authority is telling us the point of this story is Jesus has authority. How does he demonstrate he does it with his battle with the demon? So verse 24, the, the demon says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? That's like a really awkward English construction. Um, it's a, it's a tra- attempt to translate a, a Greek phrase that's kind of like buzz off or leave me alone, uh, you know, mind your own business. That's kind of the, it's a curt, relatively curt phrase. It's not like all the way to rude, but it's, it's short. Um, interestingly, it's the same phrase Jesus uses to his mother at the wedding of Cana. Um, little, little Greek trivia there. So the demon's kind of like buzz off. And the demon says, ironically then, uh, I want you to go away, but if you're not, uh, have you come to destroy us? Now, this is an interesting one because... The passage is clear. I was checking again in the language the Greek to make sure I wasn't missing the point, right? There is only one demon. So when he says, or it says, properly speaking, when it says, have you come to destroy us, he's most likely speaking in, of the entire realm of demons, all the spirits, right? He's asking on behalf of all his other spirits, uh, other demons, are you here to destroy us? So it's just kind of an interesting thing. He, this demon fully gets it, right? One of the things we're supposed to be understanding out of this is the demon knows exactly who Jesus is. He is being set up as a credible witness to the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. I think we can trust him. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. It's not entirely clear, but what this may be is not just like I'm giving an identity, but in those days the belief was that in a spiritual battle, like if you had knew the person's name or the spirit's name, you could get spiritual power over them. Uh, that's why it was such a big deal when Jesus could cast out a, a mute spirit because you can't ask a mute spirit its name. Um, and so that's a level of power that he had. So it's possible that when the demon calls him Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God, that he may be trying to get power over Jesus. He might be trying to take control over Jesus. We don't know for sure, right? But it's... It wouldn't be out of the understanding of the way the spirit realm works at that time. 
And again, I think that helps us understand that this demon, demons lie typically, but in this case we can believe this demon is being established as a true witness of who Jesus is. That he is the Holy One of God. And I suppose it's worth a moment, right, just take a little digression on holiness, because holiness always has two aspects in the Bible. We tend to lose that in our culture, and so sometimes it makes things confusing in the Bible. Um, one is, uh, you might call it conditional. Your condition, right, that's things like being moral, righteous, or godly. That's, that's what we normally think of for holiness, right? The other that we see in the Bible, Old Testament and New, is, is what you might call positional. Or an easier way to say it is you're set apart or separate. That you are devoted to, set apart for God. And Jesus, of course, is both. He is both holy in his nature, moral, righteous, and godly, and he is set apart and utterly devoted to God. So, I think that's probably invoking both ideas here. And then we get to the part where Jesus deals with this demon. And again, it's, you know, if you, if you watched The Exorcist when you were younger, you know, and it's like two hours of, you know, pea soup everywhere. Uh, you think a demon battle is like this dramatic thing. Uh, but that's not how it works for Jesus. Right? But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. It was, it was that simple. He doesn't do spells. He doesn't do incantations. He doesn't go through rituals. There were apparently other sort of traveling exorcists in that area, uh, you know, people who cast out demons. We read some stories about them, like in the book of Acts, the seven sons of Sceva, not seven sons of Sceva, seven sons of Sceva. Uh, there were clearly other people who cast out demons. It seems that they were much more elaborate rituals when they would try to do that, whereas Jesus is just orders the demon out, the demon leaves. He commands silence. He tells the demon to stop talking about him right after the demon says, you're the Holy One of God. And this is kind of one of the interesting things you see a lot in Mark, where he, Jesus quite often tells people, don't give away my identity. But he's particularly quick about the demons. He always tells the demons, don't say who I am. And I think at the heart of it, this is about Jesus, you know, the, the climax of the book, the goal of the book is to get to where his disciples understand for themselves who he is, right? To get to the point where, where Peter can make the confession that you are the Christ. He, he wants to control the unfolding of his identity, of his messiahship, of his sonship. So people, you get people to a point where they're able to understand it. Because they all have in their mind a picture of what the Messiah is going to be. They all have in their mind a picture of what the Son of God is going to be. And Jesus isn't like that. And I think he knows he needs to to get people on to a point where they can understand it and grasp it and accept it, and that that's a process. So I think he doesn't want the, 
the demons to spill the beans right off the bat. Because they would love to do that. If that would undermine his mission, they're still evil. They want to undermine his mission. They're utterly opposed to him. So uh, if they can find a way to twist and use his identity against him to to short-circuit the process so people don't get to where they're ready to understand and process who he is, then they're going to be happy to do that. So he keeps telling the demons, be silent. Don't share this information with anybody. And the demon doesn't. The demon makes noise, um, but it doesn't speak again. Uh, I'm looking at the words where it says crying out with a loud voice. I think you can quibble with the translation anyway, but it just kind of says it makes a loud noise. Um, then verse 27, right? They, the, the people, they were all amazed. And I think this word for amazed can also be understood that there's a little tinge of fear in this, right? They've seen something unlike anything they've ever, ever seen. They're amazed for sure, but this is concerning. And we'll... We'll see this again as we go through Mark, that as people begin to grasp who Jesus is, some hint of the idea that he is God incarnate, they freak out. All right, we're going to see that. I think we're going to talk about Jesus calming the storm, uh, where they all think they're going to die, and he calms the storm. And afterwards, they're more afraid than they were when they thought they were going to die because they realize who Jesus is, or at least taken it to a new level of their understanding. So the people are amazed because he has new teaching that has the authority, not only in the rules he's giving, or the, the teaching he's giving, but that it has the authority to cast out, cast out demons. And they obey him. And, so, and then we see verse 28, we see that first burst of, of fame. So he's been, you know, making some amount of, knownness in his preaching, but, but clearly not a, not a big deal. Well, that all changes now. At once, his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. So that immediate area within Israel, um, Galilee, which is up in the north part, uh, he's starting to become famous. People are starting to get interested in what's going on here. And we're going to see that fame expands, circles of expansion. It gets bigger and bigger. We're going to see that in a couple minutes because we're going to go to another demon passage um, just to underscore the point. But before we do, the questions about this confrontation. It's okay to ask. I was going to make Dallas ask questions. Oh, and didn't I promise I was going to make Carlton ask questions? That's right. Well, the other confrontation I want to look at is in... What's that? Well, why don't you get started? Um, the other one I want to look at is, is... The other confrontation is in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Um, that's my makeup for talking about a passage I've already preached on. So this one I haven't. Uh, <clears throat> so if you'll recall last week at the end of, of chapter 1, uh, verse 11... We saw God give his stamp of approval to Jesus. He says, you, you know, this is my son. Well, today what we're going to see is that this is a fact that is known across the entire spectrum of the spiritual world because the demons know he is the son of God too. It is a unanimous endorsement between these two passages at the two extreme ends of the realm. Right? God, on the one hand, declares he is my son. The demons know this. 
So he's back in Capernaum in verse 7. He's, he's just had a whole series of, of Sabbath controversies. And, it, and, and as we see in verse 6, um, the Pharisees and the Herodians have now decided they're going to figure out how to kill him. They need to destroy him. So I think Jesus decides to step away a bit because it's not yet time for the ultimate conflict with these folks. So starting in chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. This is the kind of celebrity status that he is at at this point. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So we see a lot of the same kind of ideas. His confrontations with the demons tend to be fairly similar from time to time. So note again, verses 7 through 9, that just that massive crowd. And he is, he is now a mega celebrity. And, and I think the example, the, the list we get here of the places, I think is intended to help us understand that. Uh, I should have probably just made a map or got a map. I'll probably mess this up a little bit. Uh, but if he is here, uh, that's Galilee, right? That's the immediate area. And then I think Judea is down here. I feel like Samaria is in the middle, but I might be wrong. Uh, I should have studied this. I, the worst case, you get really bad information. Right? Jerusalem's down here. Idumea is down here. Idumea is uh, not particularly Jewish. Mix of Jews and Gentiles. Um, then you have from beyond the Jordan. That's going to be over here. Um, and Tyre and Sidon are up here, right? So if this is, you know, you are here. This is the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum's on the Sea of Galilee. So you are here, Jordan River. Anyway, uh, fantastic, right? I should have paid better attention in, in geography class. The point that Mark is making, right, is that he now has not just the people from Galilee that we saw in chapter 1. He now has people from the south, the east, and the north. And by the way, the only thing to the west is the Mediterranean Ocean, so Mediterranean Sea. So everyone from all around, that's what we're trying to get. He's got a crowd now, Jews and Gentiles, Tyre and Sidon are Gentile regions. Idumea is a mixed, kind of complicated situation. Herod the Great was an Idumean, uh, not a true Jew. But that's, that's the level of celebrity. People are coming from all over. This is massive, right? This is um, probably a variety of themes that could potentially be explored here, but I won't make up anything that I can't actually say with confidence. So anyway, big crowd, lots of people, lots of, lots of groups. And, and they're doing it, right, because of the miracles, right? They, they want the show, because he'd healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And we missed the opportunity for, like, there's a Greek word play going on in here, and the translation loses it. So when it says they're pressed in on him, and where, where do you get that idea? This crowd is so, 
So they're just crushing him. That's why he had this boat set up, whether either as an escape mechanism or the place he was teaching from the platform like he does in Luke. Um, they're just pressing in. They want to touch. They want healing. I mean, for me, this is like my worst nightmare. Um, but the word here, the Greek word literally is fall upon. They are falling upon him. And then what we're going to see is that the word play is that the demons fall before him. So you have the, the ignorant masses of miracle seekers who are falling upon him. They have no better idea. They're just like literally falling on him. And then the demons, who are bad guys, and yet they know who he is, they fall down before him in submission. To fall down before him, of course, is to submit to him, to obey him, at least for that moment. Uh, so the response is different between these people who are here for a show, for a quick miracle, and, and they, like I said, they're just falling into him like clutches uh, versus these demons who fall down and submit and obey. There's a, there's a little bit of a life lesson there in that wordplay. And it's a wordplay because, the, anyway, the words sound very similar in Greek. Um, so the demons, they fall down before him, verses 11 and 12. Right? They acknowledge, you are the Son of God. Right? And remember, this was, what was chapter 1, verse 1? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right? This is that making sure we get who Jesus is. He is not just a wise teacher. He's not just a really moral guy. He's not just a cool guru, you know, or a hippie dude with a long beard, or any of the other things we, we caricature him as in our culture. He is the Son of God, and the demons have it completely right. They fall down and submit to him. Not because they like him, not because they're planning to, but because they have no choice. He is so much more powerful than them. Once again, he silences them so that they, I think, don't get the opportunity to control the narrative about him and, and, and kind of use the truth about him to, to oppose his plans. And so my question as I was reading this is like, what are the implications if the demons know that Jesus is the Son of God? Right? If they are willing to admit that he's the Son of God, what's that mean for them? What's that mean for us? I think what it draws out, more than anything else, is that, that mere knowledge about Jesus, mere facts about who he is, even if you're willing to say he is the Son of God, that doesn't seem to be the thing that gets you on the right side of God, because the demons are not. They know the facts. But they're still demons. And the difference, of course, is they're not submitting voluntarily to Christ. Right? They have no choice. They have to bow down here. You know, as soon as he turns his back, they probably would like to do something evil. So they won't submit to his leadership. They won't submit to his lordship. I think the point of this is that we have to have more than just a mere head knowledge of who Jesus is. James, I think, echoes this very well. He certainly learns this lesson well. From his brother, James 2.19. We were talking about that in Sunday school this week. Everything we did in Sunday school was, was a lead up to this lesson, really. I, I credited all to Dallas. Um, the Bible is the hardest Bible for me to find passages in. If I don't have it bookmarked, it takes forever. James 2.19. You believe that God is one. Right, and here they're quoting the Shema, the fundamental declaration of Judaism. You do well. Even the demons believe in shudder. Right? He's being sarcastic. Good for you. You're right up there with the demons. 
It's not enough to just know a lot of facts about Jesus, know a lot of facts about Christianity. It's not enough to just go to church every week. Right? We have to surrender our lives to Jesus, to accept Him as Lord and Savior. This is what the demons don't do. They know all the facts. They've just made a different choice of allegiance. That's something we have to be clear both for ourselves and with a lot of our knowledgeable friends out there in the culture today who know a lot of stuff, right? who say they're very spiritual. Right? Christians who, who don't ever go to church, don't ever fellowship with others, and this goes against the teachings of the Bible. Right? Or against those who, who only collect knowledge, even within our own churches, who, who only collect knowledge, who go to lots of, lots of Bible studies and get more and more knowledge, but there's never any acting on it. There's never any sharing it. There's never any life change going on in themselves. Right? We have to be careful that we're not all head knowledge, kind of like the way these, these demons are. I'm not comparing people, by the way, to demons. Right? I'm not saying that if you just have a head knowledge of Jesus that you're like a demon. I'm not. I'm saying, but the difference between the saved and the unsaved is not about head knowledge. It's about that submission to God, a submission to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I think that, to me, was the thing that, that really stood out as I watched these demons who clearly... I mean, if you look at the rest of the chapters, right? His disciples have no idea who he is. <laughs> they really don't even have any idea after... Even after the, the confession, and, and Peter says that you know he's the, the, the Christ, they still don't really get it. right? They don't get it until after he's been resurrected and they receive the Holy Spirit. And so I get that they're not going to get it completely, but... You know, they're pretty obtuse, particularly in the book of Mark. They come across very, very starkly. So it cannot be about knowledge because the demons have far more knowledge than anybody else in this book right now. Uh, but the disciples ultimately, of course, will be saved, and the demons, no. Questions on that? You went quick. Is it been cast out, but are, are the demons that they talk about that's all there necessarily demons that are in control of the name or are they spirits that are there? Let's see. It's a good question, because it doesn't say, it just says whatever the unclean spirits saw him. Um, I guess I'd always assumed it was casting out, particularly given the number of other places he cast out, but there's nothing here that explicitly says that. Yeah. But whatever it is, they, whenever they see him, they understand they're in trouble, the sheriffs here. Other questions or, or thoughts here? So we went, we went kind of quick, uh, but that's good too. Mark, Mark goes quick, right? So whenever I read Mark, it makes me want to talk faster because everything's immediately, 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 immediately this, immediately that. That's what I like about Mark is those first eight chapters, I feel like I'm on a roller coaster ride. Come on. <laughs> Got to have some questions. So the whole idea of him wanting to kind of keep it quiet. Yes. Yes. We know eventually he's going to be proclaiming loudly there, I am the Son of God. Um, I guess I was, I've always been sort of that idea that man could have come in earlier and tried to crucify him or take him away and kill him, or his message would have been overlooked by the fact that people are still thinking he's something that he's not. Um, where's that fine line of, you know, it, I guess you know, 
<laughs> could they? They wouldn't have been able to kill him before this time, technically. Right, and we see the example, I don't remember, is it, um, can't remember which gospel, but it's the gospel where, where they want to take him to the cliff. Is that, or is that Luke 4 or Matthew? It's where he's in his own hometown, basically, and they, they want to take him to the cliff and throw him off the side of the cliff, and, and he just walks through the crowd because it wasn't his time. So I guess the, the you know, the, the question is then, is, is he just being lied? Yes, he could have done something big and powerful and bold to protect himself, but then, you know, we've kind of gone against what he was saying here to do, so is he just being logical with this yeah, I mean, I think with the demons, I mean, partly, you probably just don't want demons to be your, like, main endorsers, because it's not really going to look all that good for you, uh, even though they, he's clearly, they're being used here for, for a purpose for us. Uh, but yeah, I think with the crowds, I think it's, I, you know, I, I go back and forth, and nobody's going to really get a good solid answer on this until they ask him himself, themselves, but... Um, yeah, I think there's a little bit of just kind of crowd control. I mean, we already see how just overwhelming the crowds are. Uh, and we know most of the people that he tells don't talk about it. They went and talked about it anyway. Um, you know, part of me that is a parent thinks that he just said that so that they would go talk about it because nothing guarantees somebody's going to do something more than tell them, don't do that. Don't talk about that. Uh, yeah, it's you know, and there's a lots of theories on the on the whole. Why does he not? Why does he tell people not to talk about it? I, I guess it resonates with me the idea of of trying to minimize the degree to which other people control or try to put him in a box as to what his ministry is and what his messiahship is. Um, even though it's an inevitable thing, right? He's fighting against human nature here. He knows what's going to happen. Uh, but, again, his goal is to teach a different Messiah than what they're looking for. A Messiah that's very consistent with what the Old Testament, you know, said would be, but that they were nonetheless just not prepared for. All right, anything else? Otherwise, we shall pray and pack it up. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the opportunity to read and look at your word a little more closely. Uh, we thank you for your word, that it has come down to us, that we can uh, read it, we can enjoy it, we can learn from it, we can be inspired from it. Lord, we thank you for what it teaches us about your son, Jesus, that he is indeed your son, that we thank you for the, the witness to his power. We thank you that, that this Jesus, whose spirit lives within us, right, who is our adopted brother, that he is this powerful person, that there is no no force that he cannot overcome, and yet he is as close to us as a, as a brother. That is, We thank you for this, what a blessing it is. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be people who do not just have head knowledge at all times, who do not seek to collect head knowledge without putting it to use for your kingdom, for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.